Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number Stores or SleepNumber.com. What time is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home, those, those, those boys. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. You're very welcome to the Irish Times Second Captain Podcast. Oh, my David here with Kieran Murphy. Hello, everyone. Hi, Kieran and Ken Erdy. Hi, on how you doing? I'm not too bad. So much has happened since we last chatted on Monday that I think a quick recap on the John Delaney story is in order here, if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. I know people are pretty much aware of the timeline, but it is, uh, it's instructive to put, a, put the sequence of events back to back. A video surfaces on balls.ee last Friday showing the FIS chief executive singing part of a Wolf Tone song in a pub the night of the Ireland-USA game. That video disappears on the website the following day. The next we hear of it is on Tuesday morning when Emmett Malone's story appears in the front page of the Irish Times. Delaney responds to that story through various radio interviews through the day, confirming that it was indeed him in the video, apologising for any offence caused, but arguing that an Irish man should simply be allowed to sing an Irish song in private without any sly recordings taking place. The Guardian, presumably very interested, intrigued by these interviews, these revelations by Delaney, reveal themselves that a law firm representing Delaney had told them it was their client's position, as in Delaney's position, that it wasn't him in the video, and legal proceedings would follow if The Guardian went ahead with the story. Balls.ie also said the reason they took the video down was that they were contacted by an FAI representative who advised them they were leaving themselves open to legal proceedings. This representative also denied that it was Delaney in the clip. Delaney himself then releases a statement on Tuesday night, rehashing some of what he'd said in the interviews, but adding one of the most cryptic sentences, possibly the most cryptic sentence of this, uh, of this strange week. Ever written. Ever fact. written, when he says, I now understand that while I was travelling and uncontactable, there was some confusion through a third party around the background of a video which appeared and where it happened and where it happened, which led to misunderstanding. Um, Now, this statement didn't do a huge amount to quell the controversy that was growing by the day. So the FAI's president was moved to issue one more statement last night. This is Wednesday night. Here it is, if you haven't heard it. This is from Tony Fitzgerald, the name of the president of our football association. It appears under a photograph of Tony looking resplendent, wearing the beautiful FAI president's gold chain over his nice suit. A statement from Tony Fitzgerald on behalf of FAI board. Um, So he speaks this evening on behalf of the FAI board in relation to John Delaney. 
This is all it says. Following recent coverage of the cyberbullying of his partner Emma and the fact that John has publicly apologised if he offended anyone for singing the nationalist song in question, we are happy to bring the matter to a close. The board is more than pleased with the way John Delaney is running the association. He's done an enormous amount for Irish football. In the past year alone, the winning of Euro 2012 bid for Dublin... 2020. A 2020 bid for Dublin adds to a number of very important developments he has helped oversee during his tenure. We recently awarded him a contract extension to 2020 and he is fully deserving of that. So the matter has been brought to a close by that statement, according to the FAI, Ken. Where do you think it all stands? Um, well, I don't think it brings the matter to a close, Owen. I don't understand what this statement is designed to do. Mm. Well, it does give us a great look at that gold chain. That I mean, I hadn't actually seen it. I mean, I thought this, uh, that it had been retired. Um, yeah. But no, there it is. I mean, could, why not accessorise with a gold, with a, with a cane? You know, top hat. Uh, why not go the whole hog? I say. I yeah. mean, if you know, we haven't really haven't seen a whole lot from Tony Fitzgerald. No, you know, but not I mean, enough as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, but I mean, this press statement, this is his coming out party. You know, I mean, he's <laughs> he's you know he's this is his time to shine. So why not uh, go the whole hog? Cane, top hat, yeah, tails, uh, football cufflinks, yeah, football gold cufflinks, football, World Cup cufflinks, football sovereigns, uh, sovereign rings. So yeah. the matter hasn't been brought to a close. Well, look, the, the statement talks about cyberbullying, which has got nothing to do with anything. It's a completely separate issue. Why is that being talked about? Why is that in the first sentence of the statement? I've absolutely no idea. It's got nothing to do with the FAI. It's got nothing to do with what's been happening this week either. And then it says, it says John Delaney has apologised if anyone took offence at his singing of a nationalist song. They call it a nationalist song. Um, and that's pretty much it, because we're hosting Euro 2020 and everything's, everything's great. And no mention of the, the way Delaney and the FAI dealt with the subject. In the the first bungled cover-up of the fact that it was John Delaney in the video. That, to me, is the, is the issue here. I mean, the fact is that Bolsonaro were threatened with legal action. They took this thing down. You know, it's, it's, it's not him, seems to be the argument there. That was certainly the argument that was put forward to the Guardian. Our client's position is that it is not him. Now, I don't understand how they can have sent that statement to the Guardian. Surely John Delaney would have known that it was him. I mean, it only happened last Tuesday. You know, I mean, he, I mean, he, you would be able to remember if it was you. So how did his lawyer end up, end up sending, this, sending this statement to the Guardian saying that his position was that it wasn't him? It was him. Mm. So, what, you know, what's going on there? The Daily Telegraph reported a similar experience. That seems to be the issue to me. And here that on. is absolutely—it's one hundred percent avoided in the you, these, president's statement, and it's only referred to in that. We, we assume it's referred to in that oblique way uh, earlier the on. Finnegan's the, wake extract. Mm. Uh, the, I now understand that while I was travelling and uncontactable, there was some confusion through a third party. That's not actually saying. Listen, this uh, lawyer was instructed to to act a certain way. This is how that came about. There's, it's it's left <laughs> open to interpretation. I guess is the way to. That's the it. issue here. Um, these various uh, media organisations were trying to report a truthful story and they were threatened with legal action if they if they tried to report this truthful story that's the issue mm. and you know the story has been reported and, and obviously the legal action hasn't materialized and I can't imagine it will um but that doesn't seem to have been addressed in these uh, in these statements and I, I think that's an ongoing I think that's an ongoing problem yeah you know I mean because there's going to be uh, other stories. There's going to be, every, you know, there's, there's constantly stuff coming up with the FAI. I don't mean, you know, John Delaney is a constant source of stories. I mean, although, you know, you could argue that, that he has been. 
But, you know, every time the FBI is, is now making public statements, it's got to be in the back of your mind. Well, hang on a second. You know, the, what about what about that last time? You know, how are you, how are you now supposed to believe? Yeah, the, this is it's hugely embarrassing for the FBI. And John, if we remember John the Baptist, the uh, the movie and um, the, the articles that, uh, that accompanied that on the uh, independent website, one of the big points raised by Delaney there was where he had brought the association from, what it was when he took it over, which was a bit of a mess, to this incredible organization now, um, a much bigger turnover, uh, just a more professional outfit altogether. And that's been really the, the one of the central tenets of his entire uh, his entire stewardship of the FAI. This this kind of stuff, this story this week is as embarrassing as any of those any of those old ones, probably. I mean, it's certainly one that the as you, you use the term bungle, just the bungle attempt to deal with the the news cycle over the few days is is staggering, really. And, it's amazing. Um, you know, makes you question how far has the association actually come in dealing with this kind of thing. Well, look, I mean, what 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 were the attempts to deal with it over the over the few days? I mean, there was silence from the official channels. You know, attempts to contact the FAI were unsuccessful. Um, you know, phone, essentially phones not being answered. It's not that difficult to to avoid contacting somebody. You just don't answer your phone um, unless they're going to doorstop you. Uh, doorstep, doorstep, doorstep. I think doorstop yeah. would be would be different. They could stop the door as well. Jam the foot in the door. Um, you know, uh, but but evidently behind the scenes, these threats were being made. That's not, to my mind, that's not a good uh, that's not a good media strategy. That doesn't suggest transparency and openness to me. Don't say anything officially, but make behind the scenes threats which turn out to be baseless. You know, that's a that's a window into the into the workings of an organization, which I don't think. I if you if that's the glimpse that we're getting through the window here, nobody likes what they're seeing inside that window. We'll chat about this a good bit more in our football podcast a little bit later on, including uh, with Richie Sadler, who's going to be in studio. But Murph, there have been a hell of a lot of sporting, high-profile sporting autobiographies this year, and mm. they're going to dominate the. I'm sure they're going to dominate the Christmas sales market, and probably are already doing so. You've got uh, you've been quite enamoured by a totally different book, which we're going to speak about today. Yeah, the Bloody Field by uh, Michael Foley, and. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's about Bloody Sunday, uh, the events of November the 21st in 1920 uh, across Dublin, where 14 British agents were shot on that morning. And then that afternoon, uh, there was an attack on uh, Crow Park by British Armed Forces, which left uh, 10 people shot and two more people uh, died uh, in the ensuing stampede to, to leave Crow Park. So... Um, Amazing in ways that it, that no book's been written about this. Actually, <laughs> uh, you're reading it thinking this is uh, reads like a espionage thriller. Um, it's it's like a, a boy's own story in, in some respects. It's a it's an outrageously good read, an absolutely brilliant read, and um, yeah, it's it's astonishing that it hasn't been written before. Uh, that uh, quite a bit of new information. Uh, in it, files that have been buried for kind of 90 years and only uh, released in dribs and drabs in academic papers over the last 10 years or so. So yeah. there's going to be an awful lot in this book that you that you just didn't know or maybe you thought you knew a certain something about this day when, yeah, there's actually a huge amount of sort of uh, 
myth and legend has built up around the actual events. Well, that is day. good to know that that he's cut to the quick of what actually happened. And I, I don't know. I hope people are as interested. And we are in the process of that of how he actually came up with this new information and yeah. how he disseminated in a readable uh, format as opposed to just a, a sort of historical tomes can sometimes be very um, quite bland yeah. <laughs> and can sometimes be a, a bit of a trudge. But this is a much more there's much more of a personal element to it. He's he's got into the, the skin of a lot of people here. So I'm looking forward to speaking to Michael about that momentarily. We're also talking to US Murph about something we mentioned briefly on Monday's show, Ken. I'm sure Brian has seen some spectacular catches in all his years watching the NFL, but it'd be interesting to know if he's seen any better than the one made by New York Giants wide receiver Odell Beckham Jr. against the Dallas Cowboys at the weekend. Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, just uh, the furthest possible distance away from him that this ball could be caught, and he caught it. It was like, it reminded me of, uh, I don't know if you ever watched, like, The Life of Plants, no. Did you ever see that? No. Yeah, no, I've, I know the program. It's This is David Attenborough, it's right? David Attenborough, I think. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, and that's seen a bit of you it. get this, uh, I think it's called a sundew, like a carnivorous plant, which has long tendrils at the end of which are globules of adhesive. And an insect sort of flies by yeah. and hits, the end of, hits off the end of one of these tendrils, which then kind of bow, or sort of bends back, but like, it's caught and then it sort of snaps back into position. That's what the guy's arm reminded me of. Um, <laughs> which, if you haven't seen um, either of the things I'm talking about, probably leaves you no better off than before you started listening to this sentence. But that's how we're going to talk to Brian Murphy about it in a, a little bit of time. In a little bit of time. In a short while is what I was trying to reach for there. But Michael Foley has popped into the studio, author of The Bloodied Field. Michael, listen, great to see you. Thanks for calling in. Thanks, Owen. No bother. But I have to say, when this book arrived into the office, it was one of those things, that, like any good ideas, uh, Ken Early was, was sitting there going, why has no other sports writer <laughs> talked about this from, you know, with some sort of a sporting background and angle? Um, why did you decide to, to do it? Um, I suppose it goes back about, it actually goes back about seven years ago. I suppose really, the, the real push for it was the Ireland England game in Crow Park, the, the famous rugby game. And I was standing, I remember at, I was at the game, I was working for the Sunday Times at it. And I'd spend a couple of hours outside. The piece that I did was with the protesters, the Republican Sinn Féin protesters outside. So that was one thing. And I I hadn't jumped into my head with them, but that was just one part of the day. And then I was inside for the anthems and all that. And Paul Ackford was standing beside me. And uh, I remember looking at Ackford and he, he's, he's just kind of when I, at that point I knew, okay, this is, this is going to be something like when Paul Ackford is kind of, re- kind of reduced to some kind of jelly, this is going to be interesting. And then it, just as the game was going on and obviously Ireland had won it, I just started, I do remember it creeping into my head going, God, you know, this whole bloody Sunday thing that was wrapped up in this game, like, you know, and the people outside protesting and, you know, what do we know about it, you know, and I... I remember reading, it was, it was a piece somewhere that said that I think Shane Horgan's last try was, was scored in the place where Michael Hogan was shot, right? So I kind of was, God, I said, or nearest, you know, which was, of course, was completely wrong. Yeah, I actually, I checked the map for this uh, really? yesterday, yeah. yeah. It was quite close to where Gervin Dempsey scored the first try, yeah. actually. Yeah. Because I was, I was looking at it thinking, because uh, I'd heard that as well, yeah. and I was like, right, okay. This, no, I'm looking at this wrong. But I mean, yeah. Crow Park is unique in that there's a canal at one end, a railway line at the other end. It's pretty easy to find. I, 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 I love that though. As though that try didn't have enough of an iconic status. We have yeah. to add another layer. We had to add a, a layer of something like, yeah. yeah. But I mean, so that sort of got me thinking. I'm, I'm interested in history anyway. And, you know, kind of I had done sort of, I suppose at that time I was just finishing up Kings of September. And that was kind of done so the idea of doing a bloody Sunday book was in my head but I never felt it was really number one I didn't feel it was good enough to do it number two I didn't think I knew enough so it was a big personal challenge as well once I kind of decided right I 
did a couple of other projects. Some of them didn't didn't quite go the whole length. So eventually, I kind of went in 2011. Right, okay, let's have a rattle at this, because the more I looked into it, then in the intervening few years, I realised that an awful lot of what we thought we knew about it was wrong. Even down to simple things like the surnames of the people who died, like some of them were just were just wrong. Um, the no, some, there were some notions out there that it was an All-Ireland final or something big like that. It was, and it was a challenge game. That was a big challenge game between two teams who would have been in the top three or four teams in the country at the time. But it was an All-Ireland final, you know. Michael Hogan wasn't the captain. Like, small things, but when you add them all up together and then you see how Bloody Sunday, um, and particularly the Crow Park aspect of it, no, rather than the Michael Collins shootings in the morning, um, how that's been sort of used over the years as a... As a, as, as a crutch for various different political views and so on and so forth. I felt, well, look, at you know what? If people are going to use it, they may as well have some idea of the story. And for me, it's not, to me, writing the book wasn't a political thing. It's just, I really, really wanted just to get the, the personal stories of the people who were killed and the people who did the killing and the people who ordered it and the people and the GSI. Because to me, it was just a day of terrible choices for everybody involved. Yeah. Um, the... So you, you say there that there were so many misconceptions, um, that there were so many just basic errors in the, the public understanding of Bloody but just Sunday. even more myths, you know, do you know the way just myths yeah, grow exactly. up out of a thing? Yeah, it's not, I wouldn't yeah. even say people, like an awful lot of people that I spoke to in Tipperary and different places had a certain idea of something that happened. It might be one thing. Yeah. And then I'd kind of have to say, well, looking at the newspaper reports and the eyewitnesses and the people who were actually involved in those, that didn't happen that way. And it's very hard for people to go off, you know, oh, Jesus, you're right and I'm wrong after yeah. 60 years of living it. Well, yeah. well, a lot of Sorry, the, the, the idea that a lot of people have in their heads is probably from the Michael Collins movie. And of course, there was a lot of publicity around at, at the time. Maybe maybe some of the criticisms of the, the tanks rolling in, in, that, in as depicted in that scene didn't take full cognizance of the fact that it is a movie. I don't think it was trying to actually say that this is what happened. No, this, is the last, this is the last word that we want to have out there in sort of the public consciousness about it. But what I kind of find interesting then is, okay, you, 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 you're trying to disseminate myth and all the rest of that. Did you, did you see that as a huge opportunity or did you see that as a massive challenge? Basically, what you had to do was go back and do a huge amount of investigative work um, painstaking historical research and you know d- did you think right okay I have to do all this work or right it's actually all here for me I just all I have to do is sit down and just collate this vast amount of data that's in the book into something kind of a into a coherent sort of narrative I have to do the work yeah the stuff was there but no one knew where it was yeah you know what I mean where, yeah so where was it <sighs> well I went to London I went to the Q archives in London uh, which based national archives, they hold all the military archives there. There's all sorts of st- all sorts of incredible stuff in there. But for many many years, like there was two there was two inquiries done after Bloody Sunday on the Crow Park aspect of it. One was done in Jervis Street Hospital, where there used to be a hospital there, and one was in the Matter. Those were the two hospitals uh, where where the like thirteen of the fourteen were taken. One one young lad was taken. To, William Robinson was taken to Drumcondra Hospital, but that was that was absorbed into. Anyway, the two inquiries that were done there were never released to the public and then put in a box and put away for 90 years. And they were only actually released to the public in 2003, I think, or 2004. And there was a little bit of, of research done on it. Uh, a Canadian historian, David Leeson, did an, an absolutely stunning paper on, you know, the events of Bloody Sunday and kind of just dissecting everything and breaking it all down um, about uh, many, a good, good few years ago. But that was sort of the only thing that was done. So I knew this box existed. So I went over. That was one place to go. But the boxes, I remember getting the box and opening it up and the first thing that I pulled out was the map that they used at one of the inquiries to outline the 
blood, like Crow Park and what it looked like on Bloody Sunday. And it's in the book. It's in the first couple of pages. You mm. open up, that's the map. The next thing I pulled out was the original order to go to Crow Park. Now, all of this stuff is all in the public domain, but to actually hold them like, <laughs> and go, oh, man, right, okay. Yeah. There was other stuff then, like there was obviously the, the original uh, text of the reports were all there. There's a lot of first-person testimonies that were there that hadn't really, hadn't made the public domain at all, really, but they were there, they were, just, they were there, but no one had really gone near them. Um, and just, it was just various sort of bits and pieces, little bits of letters that were connected to it. There was one particular chap, Michael Feary, who died, uh, who, was, who was left unidentified in a hospital for four days. And his wife wrote to uh, the British military authorities because he had been a soldier uh, sometime afterwards looking for money, basically, number one, to help his son to get a to get a trade because that was always what he said when he was alive that the army would help his son to get a trade and number two to help her cover the cost of the funeral because she had lost the insurance hadn't co- covered the cost mm. of the funeral so that original letter was there and the reply going we can't help you like basically you know so you know that sort of stuff so that's there but like when you're looking for needles in haystacks like those little small bits of detail that's what you add them all together you know then you've the Bureau of Military History Archives which is basically uh I think it's 1,700 interviews that were done over the 30s, 40s and 50s with survivors, with, not with survivors, but with people who were involved in the revolutionary period from 13 to 22. Um, just loads and loads of stuff about that particular period in time. Everybody and anybody. Um, now, they were all in hard copy in down below in Bishop Street in the archives there. But the problem with it is like it's just it's only hard copy. And I remember talking to a historian when I started out and he said, you're going to have to go through those and that's going to be the hardest because they're just all there. And how you're going to find that on a bloody Sunday, I don't know. But luckily enough, in the last couple of years, they've put them all online so you can just search. And the amount of stuff that came back was extraordinary. Like there was a story about Michael Collins on the morning of Bloody Sunday. I had never personally, I'd never read, never knew where he had been the morning of Bloody Sunday. Turns out he was up by Crow Park. There was a fella, there was a prison warden um, from Portlease Jail, Maryborough Jail as it was at the time. He was sympathetic to the IRA and used to bring up messages from the prisoners. And he was due to meet an IRA contact on Crossguns Bridge there, just up at the top of Fibsborough. And he was standing there and who walks up only Collins. And this is about half 11, I think 12 o'clock in the day. And uh, there's a match on before it, before mm. Crow Park. So the crowds are already going to Crow Park. And the boys are there, so he gives them the dispatches and they're walking back into town and they get stopped at a barricade um, kind of down the Fibsborough Road somewhere, which was had been put up because of the killings that morning. So your man pulls out like a fake sort of old prison warder's mm. ID or something, waves it at your man, blags, blags their way past and goes directly to the nearest off-license and they have a brandy like and goes, going to go, Phew. I mean, the notion that Collins yeah. was that close, number one, to Crow Park and number two, to getting caught. But all of that stuff came out of the military archives. Then you had just trying to find family and that you just you you just try everything and anything to try and find family. Um, but it was it was three years doing it. And, um, you know, as far as the myth and reality, you just have to kind of apply Occam's razor sometime and go, look, the simplest explanation is probably the correct one here, you know. Well, what's the simplest explanation as to why the match went ahead, Michael? This is something that's just intriguing. You mentioned the barricades going up there, the attacks that happened that morning. There were surely fears of reprisals and the GAA was, was there were obviously links with the Republican movement and there were going to be a lot of, uh, a lot of people at this game and potentially some sort of reprisals. Why did the, was, was there, was there a thought that the match shouldn't actually take place? There was. Um, I suppose very much like now, the GAA, while it is clearly 
it it has a political element to it and it has a political identity of its own. It officially doesn't recognise itself as being a political identity. And it was very much the same then. You had a situation where most of the hierarchy of the GA would have been militant enough. They would have been their natural... They're obviously nationalists, but their natural kind of leaning would have been towards Sinn Féin. But at the same time, when this happened, Luke O'Toole was the secretary at the time. And they felt that the game is going ahead. If we stop the game, we're acknowledging that something happened this morning. That was the, that was the first uh, kind of starting point for it, right? As the crowds were going up to the, going up to the game, uh, three IRA men uh, went looking for a meeting with Luke O'Toole. And uh, just basically, there had been a central council meeting that, that morning, actually about the ban, about lifting the ban on, on um, members of the security forces playing GA. So there was a lot of kind of big hitters there. So they, they had, the three guys had a meeting. They had, they had heard, like, they had gotten word that the British were coming to Crow Park. So they told them, they told the GA, they told Luke O'Toole and the lads, they're coming. You need to call off this game, empty this ground. We don't know what's going to happen. That was uh, quite close to the throw-in. throw-in had already been delayed. It's 2.45, but it's 3.15 when the game starts. They said, how do we know what's going to happen? We don't know. How do we know they're definitely going to come? We don't know. You're telling us this from some Dublin Metropolitan Police Constable contacts you have in the barracks. How do we know it's true? So they've kind of had to decide... If we empty the ground, it's going to cause chaos. People are going to be wondering why. It might cause actually more panic than yeah. actually just going ahead and seeing if the British do come, what are they going to do? So in that moment, like, that was the moment. They tried to close the... They agreed to close the turnstiles. And what happened was huge crowds started building outside, going, why, you know, why yeah. aren't you letting us in? So the turnstiles are closed. Ground wasn't, wasn't full. I think was, even the attendance numbers, excuse me, were hard to work out. It's about between twelve and 15,000 inside, but it wasn't full. Um, so eventually it got so ugly that they just had to open the open the turnstiles again and let people in. And there's a line in the book, one of the IRA guys lives lived on Clanliff Road and he was going to his dinner and he watched the stewards opening the turnstiles and he just sort of shook his head and went into his mother's for his dinner and just sat in the next thing he heard all the shooting outside and went outside to find a body in front of his own house, you know. Yeah. So that was it. Yeah. yeah I mean, it's, it's, it's it, uh, the telling of the, the actual... The, the shootings itself, when the when the British arrive at at Crow Park, is it's a very very chilling part of the book, you know. But there's a guy playing for Dublin that day, a guy called Johnny McDonnell, uh, the goalkeeper. If you want to tell us the story of his day on Bloody Sunday, yeah, Johnny McDonnell, as you say, was the goalkeeper. He had uh, his brother was Paddy, who would have been a bit of a superstar, I suppose, in terms if there was superstars at the time for Dublin. And Johnny was the goalkeeper. He was the man in the cap, they used to call him. They all used to play for O'Toole's. They lived down in around kind of Seville Place down in the north inner city. But both of them were, were involved in the IRA. They would have been involved in the Rising. And the night before Bloody Sunday, there was an extra target added to the British agents, the list of British agents that the IRA wanted to hit the following day. And it was up, up in Upper Mount Street. Two lieutenants, Ames and Bennett. But basically, they needed to create a new cell of lads to go and do the job. So they got, um, they got a group together, but they went to the group of IRA men who would have been coming out of several place, really. So that included Johnny McDonnell. So Johnny was pulled in to, do, to be involved in an operation that morning. Now, this is what's interesting, but I suppose that no one has been able to make that connection between the Bloody Sunday teams and the Bloody Sunday killings yeah. that morning. So we know now that Johnny was part of the group that went to Upper Mount Street. He didn't do the shooting, but he was more, in, and he wasn't outside on lookout either. So more than likely he was inside in the hallway with, the ma- with a maid 
and a soldier that they had pulled in out off the street who had kind of just stumbled on the situation. And what happened in that house was that it was led by a guy called Vinnie Byrne, who was 19 years of age. And Vinnie Byrne, again, was kind of from their area as well. They were all more or less from the same area. Took the two guys, they were in their pyjamas, like, took the two guys into one bedroom, stood them up on the bed. Um, he always had this, Vinnie Byrne had this thing of saying, the Lord have mercy on your souls before he shot them, and he shot the two of them. And that was, that was it. So after that, Johnny McDonnell, they all went back down to the Liffey, they got boats back across the Liffey and he disappeared back up to Seville Place and he went and got his football got gear. his football gear and went to Crow Park. No, he wasn't the only one who was in Crow Like Paddy Moran, who led a group to the Gresham Hotel um, and they shot a guy and he was the wrong target. Actually, he wasn't an agent. They got the wrong guy. But Paddy Moran, or, yeah, Paddy Moran was um, involved with Dunleary Commercials who played in this curtain race. It was a Dublin Intermediate football final. It was a replay. And Paddy Moran was actually pictured alongside his team at Crow Park that morning at about probably about half 11 quarter to 12 the game was on quite early but Johnny anyway yeah Johnny was it was Johnny's day Michael Hogan who died that day uh, the, the tip player wasn't a member of the IRA but he, his backstory is quite instructive in, in that he's from Tipperary he was a hotbed of, of republicanism yeah. and uh, he, he had links I guess you would say to the IRA quite, well he quite, was a volunteer quite, oh, okay, yeah, he yeah. was a volunteer and again coming out of kind of research and stuff it turns out that um there was a there was a planned attack on a barracks near. He's from Grange Mokler originally in South Tip, and there was a planned attack on a barracks called Glen Bower, which would be quite close to Grange Mokler below there. And it turns out that Sean Hogan, who would have been a kind of a famed sort of revolutionary guy at the time, uh, they actually stayed in Hogan's house the Friday before. They all gathered in Hogan's place to to do the final kind of planning and stuff like that. But Michael couldn't take part in the operation because he was going to Dublin, so he was given dispatches to take to Dublin in his shoe. Um, and to deliver to Shanahan's Bar. Shanahan's Bar would have been down sort of in the old Monto, which would be sort of, I suppose, the far end of Talbot Street there. And it would have been a place where you would have found IRA guys, but you would have also found uh, policemen and soldiers. And it was kind of in the middle of a real, the Monto, if anybody knows the Monto, so it was a kind of a dingy kind of red light district, I suppose, for want of a better expression. But Hogan, yeah, Hogan was, I mean, his brother, Dan, was a major, major mover and shaker in the IRA. He would have gone to Monaghan, uh, to work for the railways, and he was very much involved with Ono Duffy up there. So he was a big mover. He was a very good footballer as well. He played for Monaghan afterwards, and he was actually inv- he was one of the first. He was the f- he was in the party that raised the tricolour for the first time over Dublin Castle right. after independence. Dan Hogan. So yeah, they were really they were very strong. His big it. issue on the day, Michael Hogan was, uh, or his big worry at the start of the day was the the, the Dublin Ford Frank yeah, Burke. He said like a bit of a superstar at the time. Yeah, yeah. He, he tried to do anything he could to get out of Mark and Frank Burke. Bill Ryan was playing right half back for Tipperary, and uh, there's a wonderful interview with Bill Ryan from many years ago where he recounts like Hogan just basically trying to do anything he could to get out of having to mark Frank Burke because Frank Burke would have been seen, I suppose. I suppose he would have been a quicksilver sort of Gooch-like forward. Um, not obviously, I don't think he was from what I can read, not as good as Gooch, but he was sort of just pure yeah. scoring forward who could run really quickly and he was a great eye and he just was an exceptional player. And Michael Hogan just did not want to mark this guy. Um, so yeah, he begged and pleaded with Bill Ryan to swap places with him. But Bill, they had there was a bit of a shamazzle on the way up on the train the day before. The, a bunch of um, British soldiers got on and there was a fight on the train between the Tipperary footballers and the British soldiers. And Bill Ryan had his boots thrown out the window in the middle of it. So when Bill got to Dublin, the first thing he had to do was find a new pair of boots. So his excuse to Hogan was, listen, I'm wearing a new pair of boots. He walked up and down. He yeah. was walking up and down the corridor of the hotel all night trying to wear in the boots. He said, man, I can't even... I, I'm wearing new boots that are too big for me. Like, And uh, the last thing that Hogan did was was go into his bag when he realised that 
He's just not for moving. Guy, for yeah. Yeah. The last thing he did because he knew Ryan's boots were loose. He pulled. He went in. He went into his bag and pulled out a lace and gave Ryan the laces and said, "They'll tight. They'll help you tighten up your right. boots." And Ryan kept the laces for the rest of his life. You Murph mentioned how the how evocative the description is of of what actually happened once the firing uh, uh, once the soldiers had opened fire that day, and you mentioned that this is a story about individuals, about people as much as anything else. Uh, can you take us through? How Hogan was actually killed? What? What is? What is? He essentially faced with a pretty stark choice once once they realised that they had to try and get off the pitch somehow. Yeah, like they were. Once the shooting started, like they all hit. Like the, you could tell. Again, people who were there said afterwards, you could tell the guys who had either volunteer training or had been in the British Army before, because they all the guys who knew what to do hit the dirt, right. and Hogan was one of them. So Hogan hit the dirt. Frank Burke. He was still beside Frank Burke, and it was Stephen Sinnott who was another Dublin footballer was very nearby. And they were sort of, for people who know Crow Park, they were kind of halfway, I suppose, between sort of the 65 and the 45 on the Cusack stand side near the sideline, heading towards the sideline. So they started to, Hogan's words were like, let's stay low and let's just try and roll as best as we can towards the sideline. Because at that time there was a cinder track going around Crow Park and then there was a white picket fence and then there was a bank and a, a wall with a 20-foot drop into what was the Belvedere sports grounds at the time. So the, I suppose the idea would have been we'll either get into the crowd and get someone to throw a jacket on us and we can just slip out or make a run for the wall and take our chances with the jump on the other side. So they were lying there and like it's, it's literally like it's 90 seconds but it's bullets like tearing up the turf around you, you know. And they're all saying, you know, Frank Burke remembers saying an act of contrition and they're all like they just don't know what's going to happen. Hogan, they're, they're, they're crawling and they're crawling and finally... It's like, okay, I either go or I take my chances here and just lie and wait. And Hogan took the chance. He got up, got hit straight away, down. A spectator came to try and help him. Uh, Tom Ryan, who was from Wexford originally and lived up in Stony Batter. He was actually another IRA man. And said an act of contrition into his ear. And then he got shot as well. And all the time, you Frank Burke and Stephen Sinn are still lying there going, They've just seen two men shot in front of them. I mean, this is the thing, like, I mean, we hear the stories and we kind of, we have this idea of what happened, but when you actually think about it, you know, when you really, I suppose for me, when you go into for three and you're sitting there with this and you're going, this is what they saw. They saw two men literally five yards, six yards away from them, shot, killed, and they're going, what do I do now? Frank Burke eventually, the, the, the shooting stopped for like a second and Burke took the chance then. He jumped the picket fence, got to the picket fence, jumped it, no one would give him a jacket. Everyone was so panicked. He got a certain amount of the way around the ground, but eventually got marched back. But Hogan was, at that point, Hogan was, uh, Hogan was dead. How had the shooting started and become so indiscriminate? Uh, had that been the plan, or was there a dissension in the ranks, even, even amongst the forces who, who'd arrived? Um, the plan was that they would go to Crow Park. The idea of going to Crow Park was that the British authorities reckoned there's going to be a lot of IRA people here. We're going to be people with Republican sympathies here. We might get lucky and pick some people up from this morning. Or we might get people with information. So the plan was to go to Crow Park. The Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries, who would have been the police, the, you know, the additional police force to the, the Royal Irish Constabulary at the time, those three, the RIC, the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries, were to go in to the ground, stop the game. With a me- guy was going to go in with a megaphone, stop the game, explain that we're searching, game's off, we're searching everybody. And the army, going back to the Michael Collins kind of movie depiction, mm. the army were there purely to ring the, 
the stadium just to allow an orderly kind of departure of people. Now, at its very core, it's just a ridiculous idea that you'd go in and stop a game Given what had happened in the morning, everybody was expecting something like, and it just didn't know where it was going to happen. Because again, it was a time when if the IRA did something, the Black and Tans did something. So it's just they were just waiting for the reprisal where it was going to be. So that was the idea, was to go in and do a search. The reality was what happened was that again, if, if, for people who know Crow Park, if you can imagine from the top of Mountjoy Square down Fitzgibbon Street as it is now, and up to the Canal Bridge, where was convoys of trucks uh, full of Black and Tans auxiliaries and RIC men. The, the the guys in charge of the the commanding for or commanding the forces sorry were a little bit far back in the convoy. The first two convoys when they got there, the boys immediately jumped out, and instead of what they, what they were ordered to do, which was to form lines and wait, they headed straight for the turnstiles. Flew threw people out the way, and the shooting started. Yeah. So it was a case of the commanding officers not being far enough up, really. And the lads being so riled up because, again, you have to imagine Dublin, those guys were coming out of Beggar's Bush and these places. And Beggar's Bush was only a stone's throw from where the lads had been shot that morning. Dublin Castle was an absolute chaos that morning. Mm. There was anybody with any connection to the authorities went to Dublin Castle looking for safety that morning. They had to close the gates of Dublin Castle. There was people locked outside. They had to put people in hotels in the area, secure hotels to, 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 to kind of give them some sort of calm them down, basically. So, I mean... The, the auxiliaries in the back and towns who were going to Crow Park were in an extremely heightened state. The thing about the machine gun, just to go back to that, actually, what happened with the machine gun was there was a machine gun there and there was an armoured car. It was up in the top right-hand corner where the hill meets the queues extend. There was a load of people, kind of it was a massive crush going out that way. The machine gunner was ordered to fire in the air to push everybody back in so they could be searched. But, of course, the result was there was people coming out, this, coming out towards the gate and then suddenly there was people wheeling back in. So it caused an appalling crush, like, and, you know, disaster. Uh, yeah, but I think what's... I know you were quite struck, Murph, but just the, the fact that this is Croke Park, the fact that these are all the same streets that we all go to matches on yeah, today, th- we all mill around, ha- have the couple of pints and all the rest yeah, of it. Yeah, I think that's... It's, the, it's almost hard that's, to, that's nearly the... the, the the, the toughest thing to read in this book, you know, that like I, I live in Dublin city centre, so I know I know where all of the the British agents were shot. But I mean, for people who only know Dublin, uh, O'Connell Street, the Spire, and Crow Park, all of these street names you recognise immediately. You know, the geography of the place is so indelibly printed onto people's minds that to imagine this actually happened less than a century ago, and you know, the what what people showed up to watch that day is what we're still showing up to Crow Park to watch. Effectively, it's the same game. You know, it's the same, it's mm. the same organisation. I think that's the thing that, that just that, that jumps out at you. The, the, just that we know exactly, you know, you, we don't need to set this out. I mean, it's not, a, it's not yeah. an ordinary survey map. It's a, the map of the place is, is in, our, in all of our heads. It's, you know? it's, it's there and you know, like, I mean, it, it was a couple of things that I decided to do even before I really kind of, well, I suppose I was looking for information on these people anyway, but I said, look, it was important to go to all the graves and it was important to go to the places where they lived to get a f- sense of where they came from and the walk they took and how they got to the ground and all this sort of thing, you know. And um, it was like, I suppose it's only, you know, it's only since the book is weird, it's only since the book came out really, I suppose, and I'm away from it now, that I realised like, it, it's, it's very emotional. like Because, mm-hmm. I mean, I sit in Crow Park and, you know, I'm there... You know, every Sunday, really, from the end, from the middle end of July on, anyway. And there'll be times in lulls and matches, and you suddenly find yourself going, looking at the spot where Michael Hogan was killed. I don't want it. It sounds weird, I know. Do but you, that that yeah. does happen. I does do. It's, it's, it's absolutely. Book, yeah. I look over where Jane Boyle 
27-year-old woman who was to be married the following week and her fiancé were it's more or less on the halfway line, kind of probably halfway up where the lower Cusack is now. And you just look and go, there. There was a boy shot out of a tree over in kind of by where the canal end meets the Hogan stand now. It's just stuff, I mean, it's maybe it's, it's I suppose it's personal to me because I, I lived so long with it and you had to kind of walk in the footsteps to some degree of these people just in terms of how they got to the ground. The lives they lived... And even where they're buried, so many of the people who died, there's there's nothing there's no nothing to mark their grave. You know, yeah. there's nothing. It's just a bare patch of ground that no one knows what's there. Well, the book is called The Bloody Field, Michael. It's great stuff, and it's been great having you in chatting about it today. So thanks very much. No problem. Thanks a million. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. Richie Sadler's here. Richie, how are you? How are you, lads? How are you, lads? Richie, how are you, lads? How are you doing this week? I'm marvellous. Look at the joy on my face. Look how happy I was. What the fuck happened? <laughs> no, really. You know, what happened? When John was young, everyone in the city knew about him, but no one had seen him. No. It is not war and death and famine. It's not that at all. It's the opposite of that. It's persuaded of the world outside of that. That's why sport's important. Really good to talk to Michael about all of that. Hope you enjoyed that chat. And uh, we did focus largely on the atrocity at Croke Park. Uh, obviously, plenty of the early part of the book surrounds the IRA op- operation that morning as well, Murph. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, led, that left uh, 14 people dead, uh, 12 of whom were kind of active uh, British agents, British spies. And it's, it's interesting even to read in the book that there is a certain, that there is a distinction drawn even amongst the British forces about them being spies and being agents as opposed to being actual, like, forces on the street. But, I mean, of course, that, uh, that's uh, um, that, that's just how they felt in the aftermath of the Great War, that maybe military men didn't have a whole lot of time for spies. Right, okay. Which is kind of, you know... So some military men weren't, maybe weren't actually that bothered that this had happened yeah, to... Yeah, it was kind of not, it's just not, it's just not cricket, effectively. Right. Was, you know, the, that would be the, the, the attitude of, the, of some of the police force at that time, which in itself is really, really interesting. Yeah. But, of course, all these guys had, uh, had lives and had families, and some of the families were, there was one in particular... Um, there was one man shot at a hundred oh, at ninety three Lower Bagot Street, which isn't a million miles away from our own office. Uh, whose uh, heavily pregnant wife blocked the door as the IRA um, tried to lock the door and block the door as the IRA uh, flying column came up the uh, came up the steps. They shot through the door and then sh- and shot the guy as he tried to escape the escape, escape the window in front of his heavily pregnant wife. Right. I mean, the stories are. It's just unbelievable. I mean, in the same way that you're walking down the streets heading to Crow Park, as we as we referenced there, these are the same streets being described. Also, if you live or work in Dublin city centre, or if you have even the mo- even the most basic knowledge of Dublin city centre, to think that this happened on a Sunday morning on big streets like Lower Bagger Street or Upper Mount Street, Lower Mount Street, all happening within probably two or three hundred yards of Kildare Street and of the Dáil as it stands now, it's just extraordinary that this happened and. You know, I mean, the it's it's not really something that's that's uh, that's that well known. But I mean, if you if say the Michael Collins film that we referenced uh, yeah. earlier on, I mean, it's shot. It, it it's it's like the last scene of The Godfather, effectively, where Michael Corleone goes and wipes out all of his enemies. This is basically what Michael Collins attempted to do that morning. And Neil Jordan thought the analogy was so good that he shot it almost exactly like Francis Ford Coppola did. In The Godfather, I mean, that's the level of drama you're dealing with. 
so yeah, just the book is the book is just brilliant. I can't, I can't rave about it. And enough. if you've been listening to the interview, but got to the got to the point where you you don't really pay attention to the title of the book. This sometimes happens. I, yeah. I know I've done it myself. Well, like, that, that's a really interesting chat. Yeah. And then later on, oh, what's it called? It's called the Bloodied Field. The Bloodied Field. Oh, the by, Bloodied Bloodied Field, field by Michael Foley. You'll find it there. Coming up in the Irish Times Second Captains Football Podcast. That's yeah. <laughs> They have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm to walk up. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What did you want? I managed to stay alive for six days. I'm going to need it. I'd say it to your face, and I'll say it to you now. I'm down Swanfield, and we'll see them all. What are you doing down here, you Johnny man? We're going to have Richie Sadler in to talk to us a little bit about, give us his views on the whole John Delaney story from this week and. What's been going on in Irish football? Um, we'll talk a little bit about the Champions League as well. Oh yeah, um, which Brendan was... Rodgers defiant after a two-two draw. I, might have <sighs> I don't know what he's so defiant about. To be honest, I, mean, I suppose he didn't get knocked out yet. That's mm. the important thing. Liverpool, if they beat Basel in the in their home game, will qualify. It wasn't watching it yesterday. It didn't strike me. God, we're this is really the pinnacle. I mean, people talk about the World Cup, but the Champions League this really is, is where level. the best football is played. You know, this is where the real greats come out. That's not what I thought when I was watching Ludogorets Liverpool. I think that was kind of the Japan versus Greece of, of the, the World Cup. Yeah. Of, of the, uh, of the it was League put League. to Brendan Rodgers before the game on Sky Sports. I think was it might have been Jeff Shrees interviewing him. Brendan, can I put it to you that your your issues, uh, your your problem this season is threefold. No, number one, <laughs> you've got three yeah. big problems. Yeah, and I, I actually sit thought, there while I list these off. I think for Brendan Rodgers, I, I know he can he, he can be a bit of a bullshitter at times. He can come across a little, but I think he handles some situations quite well. Some interviews quite well. Anyway, uh, the three issues that were raised, I'm going to say, I'm going to I'm going to say, is Jeff Shreves here? I'm sure Jeff wouldn't Jeff wouldn't mind if he's listening here, Ken. Well done, Jeff. Uh, well done, Jeff. One issue one, you're not scoring enough goals. Mm-hmm. Issue two, you're conceding too many goals. Yeah. Issue three, Stephen Gerrard. Essentially, Ooh. Stephen Gerrard is shot. So it was this. So it was just issue three: colon Stephen. Well, Gerrard, no, it was Stephen, Stephen Gerrard. Uh, Stephen Gerrard's powers have waned, and it was really clear that it was Stephen Gerrard's powers have waned, and he's essentially yeah. not not he's holding you back. It could have even been it could have, that phrase might have been he's holding you back. And Rogers is, is stoic stare that he has quite a serious man. And, uh, His pursed uh, lips that we've seen a lot of recently. Pursed lips, and Jeff Shreves, or or else unidentified Sky Sports interviewer says, would that be oversimplifying the situation? And Roger says, well, it would be wrong. <laughs> Not so much oversimplifying as wrong, which he had to say. So he said, well, your first two are, are fair enough. Yeah. But uh, no, Stevie's great. And then he went on about how great Stevie, Stevie G is. Yeah. Um, which was quite a, quite a good answer to um, quite a, a loaded question, I think. Yeah, although again, the, maybe you make it a little bit easier by saying, would that be oversimplifying? You know, why help? Why help him out? You know, let him let him think of the answer. Let him think of how to frame that answer. More on that a little bit later on. Time now for a Thanksgiving special. U.S. Murph. Yes, we have to say it. Remember, this is just a football game. No matter who wins or loses. I am deeply sorry for my irresponsible and selfish behavior. You're being extremely truculent. Whatever truculent means, if that's good, I'm there. Strike three called, and the Giants have. Touchdown! 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 
Brian Murphy, happy holidays. Thank you, guys. Good to be back with you. And, uh, yeah, Thanksgiving, you know. I think we've been doing this show together long enough that you guys know how I feel. The greatest of American holidays. So uh, everybody's in a good mood, guys. Yeah, I mean, the, the young Murphy family is, is growing up now. Is there a lot of touch football played on the front lawn? I believe that's a tradition. Yeah. Funny you say that. Uh, yeah, the Kennedys, right? They were famous for their Hyannisport uh, touch football games. Uh, I don't know, met- a metaphor for their competitive desires to uh, achieve great things in American elected office or uh, or to bootleg liquor and make a fortune. But, uh, yeah, we don't have a tradition. We live up on, I live up on a hill, and our lawn is a little bit sloped. So uh, if we... <laughs> If we get a touch football game going, there's a, the ball will trickle down. But we'll make do. Yeah. We will make do. But you're right; it is part of the uh, a tradition. You know what you get is uh, you get a lot of guys who you know kids or college kids who come home for the holiday Thanksgiving, and they get together at their local park for the uh, t- what they call the Turkey Bowl game on Thanksgiving. And inevitably, here come the injuries. Oh, and here come the because ta- they play tackle. And these guys now are a little out of shape, and then uh, and they try to play into their 30s, and then boom, here you go. There's a knee, there's a hamstring, and uh, and that's always the beautiful part is these guys realizing the finite limits of their physical <laughs> skills. So a tradition at Thanksgiving in America. Yeah, another tradition is to sit down and watch the real pros do the business and some good games, including I'm sure the one you're most interested in, Brian, is that Seattle Seahawks are in town. They're in San Francisco. Ah, well, they're in Santa Clara. Don't forget, we built our stadium. Oh, some, indeed, uh, yeah, miles away. Yeah, they're they're in they're in California, Northern California, there somewhere. Trying to think of the analogy, It'd be like if Dublin football and hurling was playing down in like Kilkenny, you know, and they're <laughs> calling it calling it home. You know, it's like it's a good drive, man. It really is. In traffic, it could take you an hour and a half, two hours to get there. But it's Levi's Stadium, and don't forget, I have to. Be positive because our book comes out from Kizar to Levi's. There, I'm going to pump it up on your airwaves, uh, and we'll talk about that. It comes out in December. Glorifying the new stadium. But, yeah, they'll be in Santa Clara tomorrow, Thanksgiving night, I should say. And it's, uh, listen, it's what we wanted, right? And since the schedule came out, we were all looking forward to the 49ers and the Seahawks on Thanksgiving night. Now, I'd say uh, if the the expectation was a 100% I'd say that the actual like product that we're going to see is probably revving around 80% because neither team is having a spectacular year by any means. Both teams winning, however, both teams 7-4, and four, both teams in the hunt for the NFC playoffs. But surprisingly, both teams looking up at the Arizona Cardinals, who are probably the best story of the NFL this year, and their very charismatic coach, Bruce Arians. This older guy who just doesn't give a darn, uh, says whatever he wants, does whatever he wants, and has the players playing like crazed renegades. So the Arizona Cardinals have the edge on both the 49ers and the Seahawks, which makes this game uh, you know, sort of imperative for both teams because the team that loses is really up against it. They pretty much would have to win out from there. And the 49ers and Seahawks play two weeks right after this. They play Thanksgiving night. Then each team plays a game. In fact, Seattle has to go to Philadelphia, which is a very difficult game. 49ers play the Raiders, our Bay Area rivals. And then they meet again up in Seattle on December 7th. So good. this is what the NFL wants. When they, do their, they, they schedule heavily in the division late in the year. So you have these divisional rivals going at it all over. And the 49ers and Seahawks is no different. So here comes another chapter. And the loser is really going to be bumming. I saw Richard Sherman um, conducting quite an in- intriguing press conference ahead of this one. Brian, I'm not quite sure what the point was. But uh, he seemed to himself on the cardboard cutout of a teammate. Seems to be making some sort of protest uh, on behalf of another teammate. 
You gotta love it. I, I sort of, I gotta say, even though I'm, you know, my my code and my DNA is disposed to hate the Seahawks because I'm a 49er born loyalist, I have to applaud Richard Sherman because I like a little civil disobedience. I like tweaking the man. And uh, we always, in fact, I mean, we did a show a couple months ago about how all these athletes are capitulate to the man and nobody takes a stand. I got to credit Richard Sherman for, uh, he's probably going to get fined heavily by the NFL, but I like his premise. Now, here's how it all started kind of in a nutshell. Their teammate, Marshawn Lynch, who is a heck of a character, beast mode, they call him, but he does not like to talk. He just doesn't like to talk and he doesn't talk to the media. And finally, the NFL slapped him $100,000. They said, you got to talk to the media. And so his teammates uh, took a little stand and used his fine to launch a little mockery of the NFL. And yeah, if you watch it on YouTube, it's a little two-and-a-half-minute thing, it, it'd be odd. I'm sure a lot of your Irish viewers or listeners would be like, huh, I don't really get this. And it is odd. It's a little awkward. But his point was, hey, NFL, so you're going to find my teammate $100,000, and yet you slap all these restrictions on us as players. So you're telling us we have to talk. And then he brought up, oh, but don't ever talk about alcohol because if I ever talked about alcohol, you guys would find me, even though the NFL's number one corporate sponsor is Budweiser. So you're taking all that money from Budweiser, but players can't ever endorse alcohol or talk about it. Okay, so you're hypocritical there. And oh, by the way, I, I like to wear my Beats by Dre headphones, and you find me if I wear that. So you want me to talk, but as long as I wear the headphones you want me to wear. And then they hit him on the player safety issue. Oh, wait a minute, aren't you guys interested in our player safety, and yet you're making us play Thursday games, two games in five days? Oh, I see. So just blatantly just calling the NFL hypocritical. And uh, I liked it. I enjoyed it. And he's right on most everything. Now, uh, and we'll see. He'll get hammered by the league. But i got to applaud him. Oh, and I like a little civil disobedience. Yeah, it sounds like I watched the video, Brian. I'd agree with you. It's kind of awkward and a little clunky, but the sentiment behind it is, yeah, it, yeah why not have a go back from time to time? It, do you reckon that maybe the way he was thinking is quite representative of how a lot of NFL players feel about their relationship with the league? Yeah, definitely. And in fact, 49ers safety Eric Reed, you'd think this is the, the week they're supposed to hate each other, you know, 49ers and Seahawks, but 49ers safety Eric Reed immediately took to Twitter and said, I don't care about the rivalry. I love what Richard Sherman did today up in Seattle. So uh, I'm sure some of them won't be too public about it because they don't want to get fined too. But yes, there's no question that uh, they feel that way, especially on the player safety issue. That's been a big thing that the players made it known when they negotiated their last collective bargaining agreement that, hey, man, the physical violence we deal with in this league is taking its toll. We've heard all about the concussions. We've heard about the brain trauma. We've heard about CTE. We've heard about ALS and other things that are linked to brain trauma. And yet you guys are forcing us to come back out there uh, you know, every Thursday now. It used to just be Thanksgiving. It was one day a year they played on Thursday. And it was sort of a tradition, and the Lions and Cowboys took that bullet. But now they make every team play a Thursday game. And so, so I do. I think that a lot of players do feel that way, and they do endorse it. So there is a, a good, healthy, uh, good, healthy rivalry between labor and management going on. Brian, we spoke to you in the past about the, the famous The Catch, uh, so iconic that it just is known, this play, by one particular, uh, one particular phrase. It was the San Francisco 49ers, uh, one of the ones that won them, one of their many titles. Has that been replaced now? Is The Catch now what we saw from Odell Beckham Jr.? This clip made its way over to us last weekend. Well, I hope you guys have seen it. I know. I think you're telling me you've seen it, and oh, yeah. I know we frequently on this show like to talk about you know things we can look up on the internet while we're killing time at work. So, if there are any listeners out there that haven't seen Odell Beckham, O D E 
L.L. Beckham, like uh, David, Odell Beckham and the New York Giants made. And I got to tell you, Owen, I'm an old man now. I'm getting up there, man. I'm in my 40s. That's the greatest catch I've ever seen. Brady. It really is. And I, and I tend to be a person who to, uh, I tend to poo-poo the, real, the, the current people. I always say, like, yeah, no, nah, I've seen it before. Yeah, I've done, no. I'm, I'm like one of those cranks. I'm one of those old cranky guys who says, ah, that's not as good as back in my day. You know, I walked two miles to the snow to see that catch. But <laughs> that is literally the – there's a number of things that make it great. I, I think just the, 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 the actual – Grabbing of the ball is one thing. He he couldn't be reaching farther behind his head without his arm pocket out of his socket. He only, I believe, if you go back, gets it with three fingers. Now this is a football thrown at a high trajectory by Eli Manning. That that's one thing. So so the ability to even get his hand on the ball to secure the ball, and then of course we're talking about you have to get your feet in, and he's on the sideline. It is a con, an act of contortion that he does to to get his feet down inside. This is all, by the way, while he's being interfered with by a Dallas Cowboy. I mean, they, we've seen some phenomenal catches through the years because you had people who were trying to dispute it and say, well, I remember a catch I saw, and they would throw some out there, but frequently there were catches made by receivers who were, you know, fairly unguarded or all alone and acrobatic. This he did with a, a, a highest level of athleticism and acrobatics while being pummeled by a defender in uh, on a sideline situation. I just finally had to say, that's it. I'm not going to I'm not going to. I'm not going to tell you. I've seen a better one. I, I was kicking it around with some some people at work here. We talked. Yeah, you know, everybody has their opinion. You know, a legitimate argument can be made for the, the magnitude of the game when the New York Giants beat the New England Patriots in the Super Bowl about six years ago. David Tyree is his name on a third and long on the winning drive in the fourth quarter, caught a desperation pass from Eli Manning by pinning it to his helmet as he went to the ground, which was almost unprecedented. And for the stakes and magnitude of the game, you might want you can have an argument about that catch because it led to a Super Bowl win, knocking off the undefeated Patriots. But and, and the Odell Beckham catch was made in a game, a regular season game for a bad New York Giants team that eventually lost the game to Dallas. But if you're talking sheer physical, I, I, for years I was an advocate of the great John Jefferson of the San Diego Chargers, Air Coriel, and you guys can look up that one too. Look up John Jefferson, greatest catches for San Diego Chargers. Back, but I, I went back, I, I got to give it to Beckham. So yes, the new king, Owen. What I like about this as well, Brian, one part you didn't mention was that immediately, I, well, I, I tweeted a link to this, one of the many that were, that were going around, and immediately people started tweeting back links to his warm-up. Uh, I don't know if it's a warm-up from that day or just general shots of him warming up, but this guy, this guy does this kind of thing for fun. It's just something that he managed to execute at the, at, at the most high-pressure time in, in a big game. It's incredible. Yeah, it's another thing is to be able to do it in the game. And again, as you point out, this isn't his first. I mean, this guy's a rookie, by the way. So, I mean, this is a guy who was drafted out of LSU, Louisiana State, by the New York Giants. And, you know, he got the, kind of circling back to one of our earlier topics, Richard Sherman. We all know what a mouth he is and how, and how he likes to kind of get all Cassius Clay on his opponents. And frequently he, last year, he made it famous by grabbing the microphone right after beating the 49ers in the NFC Championship and calling Michael Crabtree a mediocre receiver. Uh, in the heat of the moment, and standing by it, too, by the way. Even Richard Sherman, when the New York Giants played the Seattle Seahawks, went up to Beckham after the game, and Beckham reported that Sherman said to him, man, you are the real deal. So Sherman is not uh, gratuitous with his verbiage there, and and he uh, admitted. So, yeah, Beckham in warm-ups, 
Beckham during the game, and uh, the New York Giants have to be happy. It's been an awful year for the New York Giants, but they have to be happy with that find. Whether or not Eli Manning's going to be the guy throwing passes to him in the future is another matter, but yeah, it's fun. And I think somebody was pointing out to me that most of the top uh, receivers in the league this year are rookies. Uh, a guy named John Brown at Arizona is making great catches, too. A couple others. And it's kind of a, a reflection of the new league where, you know, they're allowing receivers to, to make these catches and guys aren't allowed to hit them like they used to. You're, you know, the, the, the so-called defenseless receiver rule that didn't exist 15, 20, 30 years ago now is allowing these guys to even be more acrobatic. So we're seeing the new era led by the new king, Odell Beckham Jr. I'd say it's still a tough, tough opposition, though, Brian. I mean, Simon has furnished me with a statistic here. The wide receivers last even uh, – their, their careers are even shorter than the average of an NFL player, which is quite short anyway, 3.3 years. Apparently, a wide receiver, less than three years, the average one. Now, some of them maybe just burn out or, or don't make it. I'm not saying they're all necessarily injured out of the game, but is it the kind of position that if you drop 1% in terms of speed, agility, flexibility, your career is over, whereas maybe you can survive as a slightly um, a slightly uh, uh, less athletic linebacker or something like that for longer in the league. Yeah, I mean, excellent observation. It's true. It is with every class of Odell Beckham's coming out, your speed and your flexibility and your agility gets exposed. And yes, you're right. It is a, a, a position for only the sleekest of Jaguars, you know, only the toughest of guys going over the middle. You know, I did say in the previous answer about the, the hitting on defenseless receiver, but that, and as you point out accurately, it still means that you're going to be subjected to some massive hits. It is not for the faint of heart. It is not for everybody. So there are a lot of guys who try and come out with certain skill sets, and they don't have the, the physical toughness to, to succeed. They don't have the mental toughness to get back up and take those hits. So the ones who do succeed are special. You know, it's funny. You want to watch another one. Um, Anquan Bolden is a name you guys should know. He's a 49ers receiver. He won a Super Bowl with the Baltimore Ravens a couple of years ago. He made a Super Bowl with the Arizona Cardinals a few years ago. We talk about toughness. When he was an Arizona Cardinal, he received a hit so vicious in the end zone that it fractured his face and his jaw. It's the kind of thing that you would think the guy would never get back on the field. Not only did he get back on the field, he was back in the Super Bowl and productive. And then he won that Super Bowl with Baltimore. And then the Ravens, because of salary cap issues, had to trade him to the 49ers. Last Sunday, the 49ers were playing the Washington Redskins, a really bad team, and they were losing 13-10 to in the fourth quarter. It looked atrociously bad for the 49ers. And Colin Kaepernick threw a 29-yard pass down the field, and he put it in a position where, to make the catch, Bolden had to absorb a vicious blow from a streaking safety named Ryan Clark of the Redskins, who hits him so hard that they both go staggering back about four paces. Clark crumples to the ground, the guy who delivered the hit. Bolden keeps running and runs 10 more yards. An amazing, staggering bit of toughness got up and kind of just spun the ball on the ground like, yep, who's next? And Ryan Clark had to leave the game. He had to leave the game with a concussion. So that's a guy, Anquan Bolden, in his 30s who's still doing it. And you can count them on one hand, guys who are that tough who can still do it. So, yeah, you appreciate it when you see it. I'm just looking online here. There's an article from the New York Times, Brian, uh, with the tagline on the catch, but the tagline, physicists, mechanical engineers, and sports scientists analyze Odell Beckham Jr.'s incredible catch. So I take it this has uh, has captured the imagination. <laughs> it has, very much so. And I heard Bill Parcells, who's cranky, he was interviewed on uh, on ESPN. He was asked about it, and he said, "Hey, said, hey, I'm gonna, yeah." He said, "That's pretty much it." So when you get, we're getting into that sports science now. I don't know how much you guys are doing it in Ireland, but 
they, that's one of the kind of the last couple of years in sports now. They're getting into kind of the physics of it and explaining, you know, what it takes to stretch the body a certain way and what the muscles are doing and the tendons are doing and the eyes are doing and the eye-hand-eye coordination. So the Beckham catch is like the ultimate uh, Petri dish to put under the microscope. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it's a good way to kill time at the office. Yep, that's what we're all about, Brian. As you said, listen, enjoy Thanksgiving. Hey, all the best. Happy Thanksgiving. I know you guys aren't supposed but just have a thought for us Americans who are overeating once again. Will oh. do, Brian. Take care. All the best. Ah, could have been the most, uh, the most San Franciscan answer we've ever had from mm. Brian Murphy. Uh, are you going to be playing too much football with your, with your young family? Well, no, my house is on too much of a slope. <laughs> the ball just goes right down to the bottom of the massive hill there yeah. if, we, uh, if I play with my kids. It takes a lot for US Murphy to say that that wasn't the greatest catch because the catch known as the catch. Oh yeah, that's the one that I brought up at the start. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's that's quite something. I mean, you know, if you've if you've got a if 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 you're admitting it there, if a San Francisco 49ers fan can admit that, then he's the big. Now I must fan. say, I only brought it up a little bit. I only brought it up very briefly at the start. So maybe if we'd really if we'd really just brought him back into that moment yeah. of that the John Montana to Clark wasn't Dwight the Clark, Dwight yeah. Clark. Uh, maybe Brian. I say Brian already two minutes after the interview is regretting why, saying why, what why he just did said. I say that. I can't believe that. It's unbelievable. I won't be able to walk down or up and up the up and down the hills of San Francisco if uh, <laughs> word gets back. Extraordinary steep hills of San Francisco. Thanks, Ken. Thank you, Owen. Thanks very much, Murph. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, Owen. Thanks, Thanks guys. Do have a listen to our Second Captains football podcast a little bit later on, and you can check out, you can check out secondcaptains.com for uh, for anything else you want to know about the show. Take care. What is that? It's the second time it's gone off. They never go home, they never go home, they never go home, those, those, those boys.